And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. It's a great joy to be with you. And uh, I'm not going to preach in Greek, but I can do you a favor. I can speak English with a Greek accent. (laughs) So, uh, uh, well... uh, It's really a joy to be here with you, and already we have enough connections. Several people from your church visited Athens in different occasions, and it's a really real blessing to be back here in uh, Waco. And um, uh, I'm really blessed to be part of your missions Sunday, missions conference. And uh, as I was looking at uh, the screen, uh, and I saw the title that uh, you chose for the missions theme, Um, the gospel for all, the gospel for all. I felt that um, many times we say these grand statements and it's very easy to say them, but uh, how difficult it is to really mean them and to actually go ahead and do something about them. And let me tell you, uh, you know, speaking as a pastor of a Presbyterian church back in Athens, let me tell you that this is really something very difficult for us uh, to really realize that the gospel is not only for us or for people like us, but it's for all. I mean, keep in mind that in Greece, we are a small minority, not the Presbyterians, but uh, evangelical Protestants. We are 0.3% of the total population, which uh, I was saying when we had the Sunday school, uh, I may repeat a few things, excuse me. I said, you know, in order to understand the dynamic thing of a religious group in your context here in Hueco, which is 0.3, typically there's some weird, dangerous, suspicious people, okay? <laughs> this is who we are for the majority of the people in Greece. But when you live in, in a situation like that, the, the, the temptation is always to, uh, to develop this fortress mentality. So let's be protected, uh, like uh, within the four walls, and let's be us, and let's keep God for us, let's keep, gra- keep, keep grace and the gospel for us, and uh, the Lord was really gracious uh, to really push us out of that kind of thinking, which was the mode of our thing for many, many, many years. And um, uh, like the story of our church is that 2008, something happened uh, right before we started thinking about church planting in the city, about developing a vision to have a gospel impact for our city, but uh, as good Presbyterians, we kept talking about that without doing anything uh, and making a committee and analyzing and discussing the board of the elders. But, you know, we started, we said, okay, perhaps we need to plant the church uh, in an area called Exarchia, which is uh, uh, the anarchist capital of Europe, and many anarchists live there. Uh, But we're not doing anything because, okay, we may... um, 
intellectually think that the gospel is for all, but again, I mean, do we really mean it, and are we willing to do something about it? So the Lord, in his grace, did something. There was this incident in Athens where a policeman sat and killed a 15-year-old teenager in Exarchia, in that very area. And when that was found out, it was an eruption of violence all over the city for days, three days, day and night. Young people, your age, teenagers, uh, they were out in the streets, no schools, nothing operated. And they were really uh, burning and breaking things and looting. And somebody calls me and I was in my car and says, you know, we're on the news because the cameras were following the action, and actually some anarchists were really in front of our church, and they were fighting with the police. I dropped my car, I ran into the church, they just left, and as I entered into the sanctuary, I mean, we have a different kind of setup. We have windows that side, and the, the other side, that is the street side, and as I entered in, the whole side, all the windows, they were broken, and inside the church, there were tear gas, uh, and um, you know, pieces of glass, broken glass, stones, marbles. It was such a mess. But for me, that was a God moment. I realized that um, these very people that we were talking about going and reaching them uh, out with the gospel, God sent them in our front yard because we're not, we're cowards. Uh, and we wanted to talk about that, but not willing to go. And he brought them. And if you come to my office, I keep a piece of marble as a reminder that the gospel is for all. And of course, let me tell you that this is not an easy thing. It's a struggle. It's a struggle. I mean, uh, I mean, don't believe that after that we became the super church that we said, okay, now we will go and have an impact to the city. Nothing of that happened. It was really a struggle how we do that. And it's difficult. And, uh, uh, and then a second time, same thing, the whole side, you know, all the windows broken. And then again, the third time, the third time I asked the board of the elders and I said, is it possible to leave it like, you know, like this and have a service, a Sunday morning service with all our windows broken? And we did. And it was a very interesting experience. Imagine we tried to visualize that, all the windows broken and here we are inside um, worshiping the Lord. And, uh, in, in my sermon, at a certain time, I asked the congregation to look at the windows. And I said, okay, I mean, that can keep on happening unless we get the message. I mean, God is telling us something here. That we need to realize that the gospel is not for us. That we cannot be protected and uh, have our comfort zone here and everything is fine and we have good time and we feel safe. No, our calling is to be outside in the city. The gospel is for all. And as I said, we are struggling with that. So we're not a good example. But there is one. There is a, a very good example in the scriptures and actually in the passage we just read in uh, the church in Thessalonica, um, the ancient church, not the recent church. Uh, uh, I mean, we have a church in Thessalonica, so we need to uh, explain that. Uh, uh, you, we, we see a church that Paul says is a type, is an example. Uh, it's a church that God, that the gospel is for all. So if you come with me, uh, the passage we see in, um, in verse 
7, it says that you became to us, and I'm translating from the Greek text, but please uh, look your version. You became for us a type, an example, a model. Uh, and why is that? Then we go to verse 8, and it starts with because, gar, because from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only to Macedonia and Achaia, but here is the thing, to everywhere. You know, the gospel is for all. So this is a church that actually not only believed it, but practiced it. They brought the gospel to all. And that's why Paul says, this is a good example. This is a type that we need to follow. So uh, I would like us to see three things. First of all is what is the method? How did they do it? Then the motivation. Why did they do it? And third, what is the message? What they have proclaimed, okay? The method, the motivation, uh, and the message. Let's start with the first one. What is the method? Well, I studied at Gordon Conwell, and uh, I understand that Jeff uh, spent a good deal of time in Boston, so Gordon Conwell is in Boston, and um, we had a professor there who now teaches at Westminster Theological Seminary. His name is Greg Bill. So he taught us a method of studying the scripture, which is called discourse analysis, which is a kind of a complicated method that has a fancy name that gets you intimidated or makes you who know how to do it feel like, okay, you're superior, which is not true. Uh, but this is a method that actually helps you get to the main point of a passage. Okay, what is the main point? So I'll tell you in a sec what is the main point of this passage. But before we do, before I reveal the big secret, uh, uh, let me tell you this. Let, let's remember what is the main theme of this passage, okay? Before we say what is the main point, what is the main theme? So the main theme of this passage, as we said already, is about witnessing to every place. It's about the gospel going to all, okay? It's about witness. So the question is, what is, what makes, what is the secret for effective witness, okay? And here is the secret. Verse 8, second part. Again, I'm translating from the Greek text, and it is this. So that there is no need for us to say anything. Interesting, isn't it? Here we are expecting the big secret, the big strategy about witness, and it is that there is no need for us to say anything. How convenient, isn't it? Okay, I hope you don't go back home and people ask you, okay, you were on a missions conference, what, they did, what did they tell you about, you know, what is the secret of it? Oh, you know, that there is no need for us to say anything. Okay, we need to clarify a little bit. So, uh, and the, the key question is that, uh, who is he referring to when he says we are not, we, we don't, there's no need for us to say anything? The answer is very simple. Paul is talking about himself, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And as we read in chapter 2, uh, he calls themselves the apostles of Jesus Christ. So they are the professionals, okay? So Paul says that because the church is doing what it's supposed to do, we, the professionals, have, you know, there is no need for us to say anything, which is ironic, isn't it? Because in our mentality, in our church's mentality, the reason we hire 
pastors, we pay evangelists, we support missionaries is many times in our mentality. So we have all these professionals so that we have, I mean, there is no need for us to say something, okay? But here is the exact opposite. So the church is doing what she's supposed to, to do. So Paul says, you know, you know, there was no need for me to do anything, to add anything, because you do what you're supposed to do. So the question is, what is this that the church is doing? And her witness is so effective. The answer is this. Okay, I'll say it and then I will illustrate it. It's uh, a church that lives in such a way that raises questions, which then the church answers with her words. Okay, let me say that again. What is the secret? The secret is that we live as a church in such a way that we make the people around us wonder, ask questions, and then we answer them. And then our words are not simply heard, but we sound forth. Okay, that was like, uh, uh, it, it, it blended in well, okay? Uh, it was like sound effect. Uh, so, the, because actually that word, exihisen, is the word that is being used for the sound of the trumpet. Okay, so it's not simply that I say the gospel, but people listen to the gospel. Why? Because my life raises questions, and when they ask, how come I say the gospel and people listen? Let's see. One or two examples of that. Actually, um, so you need to come to the early service because I said two examples for you. I'll just say one, but I'll say it with my passion. Uh, well, um, let's, let's, let's go directly to, to verse um, 9 where Paul describes what happened in their life. And he says that everybody talks, so they're, you know, their change is something that people outside discuss. They see it and they discuss it. This, you know, can you believe what happened to them? And here is what, you know, what they're discussing about. They talk how, they re how you returned to God from the idols in order to serve the, um, real and, uh, the living and, real and, and true God. Okay? So they return from the idols to serve the living and true God. So when we're talking about the idols, what, what exactly is he describing here? Many times we make the mistake to think that we are sophisticated enough and those people back then who had the idols, but we have more sophisticated idols like the power, money, sex, or other idols, and they only had these graven images and you know statues and stones and things like that. In reality, they had those idols, but also they had the idols that we have already. And let me tell you what was the number one idol of the Roman Empire, because this is where they are at, okay? They're part of the Roman Empire. What is the number one idol of the Roman Empire? I'll tell you that in Latin, it was the Pax Romana, the Pax Romana. It was the worship of order. It was the worship of a society that is so predictable, of a society that you have clear boundaries that nobody crosses. So life is predictable, and everyone has his own or her own position, and he or she is there. And the borders are kept, and there is no, uh, no surprises in life. So here is the idea. 
the idea is, and actually, if you go back and you study Roman history, there were cities that they were divided. So here are the Jews. They live together. Let's keep the Jews with the Jews. Here are the Greeks. So this is the idea. The Jews are with the Jews. The Greeks are with the Greeks. The poor are with the poor. The rich are with the peer. With the, with the rich, women are with women, men are with men, and everybody knows his or her position, and you have clear boundaries, okay? This is the Pax Romana, the worship, the idol of order. And the gospel arrives in Thessalonica, a Roman colony. And the gospel creates a new community. And if you go back to the book of Acts, chapter 17, where we have the narrative for the beginning of the church in Thessalonica, we read... Who were the members, the first members of that new community that the gospel created in that town? We read that there were some Jews and also Greeks, Gentiles, and also some women. And some of them, they were very prominent, which means they have social status and even money. And there goes the Pax Romana, you realize. And all of a sudden, we have this new community with no boundaries. So all the gender boundaries are gone, men with women. All the social boundaries are gone, poor and rich. All the national boundaries are gone, Jews and Gentiles. They're all together. And when people see that, they do what? They take notice and they ask questions. And they say, how come? I mean, how is it possible for all of you to be together and not hate each other, not kill each other? You actually talk with these people. You can coexist with these people. How? Why? And then you say, because of Christ. And people listen. You just, you're, you're not just saying it. You sound forth the gospel. Let me tell you, an illustration from our own experience. One of the ministries we have in Athens is something that we call the Center 68, Center 68, which is a community center which um, um, uh, serves uh, Albanian immigrants. It's in a location not very far away from the church, geographically, but demographically, it's as if you go to a different planet. So uh, we have received 20 years ago, one million Albanians, immigrants in Greece. Greece is a country of 11 million, okay? So you can understand the dynamic there. So there is this uh, neighborhood, which is mostly Albanian immigrants. We went there and we started a community service. And part of what we do there is that we do tutoring. We help the kids stay at school and we help them with their coursework and all of that. So uh, there is this guy, he is a, let me say that correctly, the, you know, it was confused the other time, CFO, right? As I said, not UFO, CFO. <laughs> okay, he was like this guy with a suit and a tie coming out of, like, after his job with his BMW parking in this neighborhood to do math, help with uh, the coursework of math, this 10-year-old Albanian girl, okay? So keep that picture in your mind. Now, if you are like a regular Greek, like a mainstream Greek, and you say, what may be the relationship that this 10-year-old Albanian girl may have with this big shot, you know, CFO Greek businessman? What is the relationship? Any Greek will answer in a second, and he will say, the mother of the Albanian girl cleans the house of the Greek guy. That is the only relationship that I can think of, that her mother 
works for them cleaning up their house. But in the context of the kingdoms, in the, of the kingdom of God, things are different. He is serving here. You know? And when people see that, they ask questions and they say, why? And you say, you answer, you say, because of Christ. And if you do that for 10 years, sometimes it takes time, then perhaps you may be able to even plant the church there. Because of so many people have asked the same question, and you gave this answer, and they heard it. So uh, what is the method? The method is difficult but simple. The method for witness, for effective witness, is that we live lives that raise questions. We live an alternative lifestyle. That is what the church is all about, is a kingdom, meaning that it has to do with being an alternative society that does things differently than everybody else, so that when people see the church, they ask questions, that they say, why? And then you answer and you say, because of Christ, because of Christ. But what is the motivation? Why should you do that? I mean, why should we care about bringing the gospel to all? Why should we care about all these people who are lost? Come with me in chapter 2, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8. There, Paul explains, gives the explanation, gives the motivation, what motivates him to be an evangelist. Why he cares about the Thessalonians, we'll find out here. So, in verse 8, Paul says, uh, well, uh, I like the interaction. Uh, Jeff, what is the word that is being used in, the, in verse 8 in English? Okay, being affectionately desirous of you. There is a very interesting Greek word there. I'll just show off, you will allow me. Uh, it's, uh, which means taking hostage. I mean, have you ever felt that, I mean, we, we say this expression, she stole my heart, you know, something like that. So that is, that is the sense there. So that's how Paul feels about these people. And then he says, because of that, we were willing and that is very important. It was not a duty that I'm fulfilling. We're willing to give not only the gospel, but even our lives. And why is that? So here we are coming to the motivation. Why Paul is willing to give his life and give the gospel to these people? What motivates his witness? He says, again, Jeff, you will help me because you have been very dear to us. This is the last the Greek lesson I'm going to do for you. Uh, in Greek, there is another word, uh, a very powerful word. is the word love. Because we lo you have been beloved to us. We loved you. And uh, there is an interesting dynamic there, which I'm going to explain in a second. But let's, let's stay you know, at this point for a while, for a moment. Okay, many times we say, we stop here and we say, okay, that is the motivation, okay? Why we, why we want to give the gospel to all? Because we love everybody. Why, I mean, should I evangelize? Because I love these people, which is true. We need to love the people, and because we love them, we want to give the gospel to them. But this is not the only thing and the only dynamic that we have here. Because if we go to chapter 1, verse 4, we see something else there. We see Paul saying that... This very same group of people, the Thessalonians, they are, I don't know if you see that, they are loved by God. 
You see that? I don't know if you see the connection. Let me explain the connection. So Paul says, I love you. And also says, God loves you. And basically what he wants to say is this. Paul loves what God loves. What is the motivation behind missions? What is the motivation behind witness? Is when our heart is in tune with God's heart. Um, okay, here is your bonus, which I didn't say that in the morning, in the first service. Let me say that to you. When Paul went to Athens, I mean, I couldn't help but saying something about Athens, <laughs> not only about Thessalonica. So when Paul went to Athens, we read that he went out and he started walking in the streets in Athens. And we read uh, that Luke says that he was provoked, his spirit was provoked within him. Uh, behind this word, there is a very interesting Greek word that you have a medical term, paroxysm. I don't know if you, I hope you have never heard that, but uh, I don't know if you know the paroxysm, which is it's like a deep, uh, you know, disturbance, provocation, and all of that. Now, this is a rare word, even in Greek, but there is a very interesting uh, thing to notice that this very rare word is used in the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, to describe how God feels when he sees idolatry. Many times in the Old Testament, when God sees the idolatry of his people, he feels a paroxysm. And Luke uses the exact same word to describe how Paul felt when he saw what? The idols, idolatry. So, I mean, the, the, the motivation behind what Paul did was that his heart was in tune with God's heart. I mean, he loved the things that God was loving. He hated things that God hated. He was so much in touch with God that it was all about his glory. And he could understand and sense God's heart. And he, out of that, did his ministry. But what was his message? We saw the method. We saw the motivation. What is our message? Let's go back to the text. In verse um, 8, we read that from you, says Paul, uh, the word of the Lord has sounded forth. Now, uh, don't trust pastors when they say something. They're liars. So I'll do one more Greek lesson here. <laughs> that is the last one. Uh, I hope. Uh, well, we have this expression, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord. And in Greek, uh, of the Lord is a genitive. That's how we call it. And there are two kinds. And there's so much ambiguity because it's very difficult at times to see if it is subjective, genitive, or objective genitive. And I'll explain what I mean. So is it the word spoken by the Lord or is the word which is about the Lord? You see the difference? So is the word of God or of the Lord or is the word that talks about the Lord? I think it's the second. I'm not going to explain why, but I think we have uh, a, a, an objective genuine here. So what is the message? The message is, is very clear and very simple. It's the word for Christ. It's, it's Christocentric. It's, it's, it's about Christ. That's, that's what they were talking about. That is what the gospel is all about. It's not about morality. It's, it's not about what you have to do. It's not about your acts. It's about Christ. That is what Paul was preaching. That was what 
the Thessalonians were preaching, that is our message. It's about a person. It's about Jesus Christ. That is what their life is all about. Read with me verse 10. I mean, what characterizes their life is that they turn to God from the idols, and they are waiting for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, to come. That is, I mean, everything is about Jesus Christ. And let me end with this image. In Wittenberg, I mean, this year, we, that's why they gave me this nice book, because uh, 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 this year we celebrate the 500 years since the beginning of the Reformation. October 31st, Luther nailed the 95 Thesis in the uh, door of the castle's church in Wittenberg. But there is another church in Wittenberg, it's a small village, it's not a big deal, uh, which tells you something about the power of ideas. I mean, so it was not the superstructure that conquered the world, but it was, it was the gospel that uh, had the power. So it was not that he had this amazing infrastructure or something. It's a small, insignificant village, but it was the gospel that made the difference. So if you go to the second church that there is in Wittenberg, which is the church that Luther actually preached from that pulpit, in the altar there is a painting. There is a painting. And in that painting, we have Luther preaching. And uh, the painting is like that. At the one end of the painting is Luther up on a pulpit preaching. Higher, like imagine up there, preaching. On the other end, safe distance, the congregation. Uh, yeah, uh, the congregation. So his wife, kids were standing like slim, like right in front of the first uh, row. Uh, they were standing and, you know, so this is Luther up there preaching, the congregation at the other end. At the very center, Jesus Christ crucified the cross. Now, here is the interesting thing. There is a detail. If you look closely, you see that Luther is not speaking. He's not preaching. But basically what he does is he's pointing to the cross. He's pointing to the cross. That's the message. It's the word about the Lord. It's about the cross. So this is our message. And um, our motivation is that we share the same heart with God. We love the things that God loves. And our method is that we live a life that makes people ask questions. And when they do, I hope we're not telling them because we're good people, but we say because of Christ. Uh, uh, we have many things that we do with refugees. One of them is what we call the houses of hope. We have four apartments, and uh, in each of these apartments there are two bedrooms, and we put a family in each bedroom, so we have about eight families, Syrian and Iranian families. So. For a long time, I was doing the interviews before uh, all of the Muslims, okay, that we take them in, uh, Syrian refugees. So uh, as I was doing the, the interviews, so we were asking questions and all of that. At the very end, I was always ending the interview process saying that. And I need to tell you this. We are not doing that because we are good people. And look, you know, they, they're looking like that. And definitely we're not better than you. We're doing that because of Christ. Shall we pray? Let's pray.